Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. I'm Andy Mitten and I'm joined today by a special guest, uh, Patrick Barkley. Patrick is a, a writer and renowned journalist. He's written a book, Matt Busby, Sir Matt Busby, the definitive autobiography, which came out recently. Uh, it's had some very good reviews and I thought it'd be nice to, to speak to Patrick, someone I've known for uh, quite a long time, mm-hmm. and talk about Busby and um, He's been close to to United for a long time. He's lived in Manchester as well. This podcast is brought to us in association with RedArmyBet.com. Go to the website RedArmyBet.com for the latest odds and offers and um, profits. 50% of profits are given back to Manchester United uh, fan causes. Um, Paddy or Patrick, what do you prefer? Yeah. Uh, well, Pat- uh, Patrick is what it says on the on the, the byline in the book and did when in the uh, many years, 40 years that I was a football writer. Um, but uh, you call me Paddy and so, does all, so do all my friends. And um, why did both you? of my friends, in fact. <laughs> um, but yeah, why did I write the book? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was. I'd done three biographies before. Uh, oddly enough, only one of them wasn't either a past or present Manchester United manager. Because I did the first one I did was Mourinho, the second one was Alex Ferguson, the third one was Herbert Chapman, the great Manchester, uh, the great Arsenal manager of the twenties and uh, early thirties, and. Um, I just thought there was a glaring gap there. If I was going to do another uh, biography of a football manager, um, it had it could only be Matt Busby. Then, apart from it, it, quite apart from the fact that I met him uh, not when he was manager. I'm not quite that old, but I met him when he was a director of the club, and I fell under his spell, uh, as everybody did, and. Uh, he was a man of just extraordinary charisma, extraordinary charm. But the most important reason for writing this book now, because there has been a lot of books written, of course, about Manchester United and, and, and some about Matt himself, but nothing had been written in the post-Ferguson era, or in nothing had been written in the light of Sir Alex Ferguson. And I knew, I didn't know how much, but I knew that the comparison between Ferguson and Busby was almost ridiculous, almost uncanny. But it wasn't until I researched it fully that I realised the similarities between them. They were totally different personalities, but the similarities in their methods, and and I think that's much to the credit of Sir Alex Ferguson, to, to have rebuilt Manchester United, but to have done it on the traditional model. That's the difficult part. How would you describe the traditional model? Oh, everything that people the of the younger generation associate with Sir Alex. Wingers, youth development, half of the class of 92 read the Busby Babes. Uh, though I personally think that that's quite flattering, even to the class of 92, great though it was, um, to be compared with the Busby Babes, because there were so many of the Busby Babes. But the, the, uh, the, to, to go on to the similarities, squad rotation, everybody thinks of Sir Alex. My personal opinion, he's the modern master of squad rotation. He was able to weaken his team uh, or change his team uh, for lesser European games 
and for uh, domestic cups, even for league games that he thought United could win with a slightly dilute team. Uh, he was able to do that better than anybody else. He was able to do it as well without, he might have angered the players who were dropped, because every player wants to play every game, or every good player wants to play every game. He might have angered those who wanted to be dropped, but he always managed to convince them that they were being dropped for a, for a good reason. That, it was almost as if he'd learned from Matt Busby's textbook. Matt Busby did it when nobody did. Did it, did it when it was, when there was a law about always keeping your, you know, a regulation about always playing your best team in a league match, no matter what the uh, distractions were. Matt was able to drop nine players, and still there was one case when he dropped, uh, he'd actually dropped nine players for an away match against Burnley, who were one of the fellow championship contenders in those days. An away match at Burnley, and they won 4-1, with the res virtually a reserve team. I mean, that was, he was able to rotate um, towards the end of the season when this newfangled European football came in. Because, of course, Matt never failed to get to a semi-final in Europe. Unbelievable record. Never once didn't went into a season in Europe and didn't get to the final four, even in the year of Munich. So it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it, the squad rotation was being done by Sir Matt nearly half a century before Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex became, in my opinion, the maestro of squad rotation, uh, in world class at, at squad rotation. And, and, uh, you know, I could go on uh, just about similarities, even tiny things which you'll probably consider and, and people listening to this will consider utterly trivial, like um, uh, they both, both Sir Matt and Sir Alex, married across the sectarian divide in, in a, you know, in the different ways around. And you might think, well, that's nothing, who cares? Coming from Manchester, you wouldn't, or London or anything, you wouldn't think that was mattered a jot. Well, but, I, I married across it as well because my <laughs> wife is, is Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it wouldn't. It, in, does, it doesn't in, matter. In Barcelona, in, in Manchester, no, where you came no, from, no. it doesn't matter. It's not even. Um, no, it's not but even. in the west of yeah. Scotland, at and the time when they, uh, when they uh, were, were yes, around, take away. Uh, then, of course, uh, but in Manchester at the time when they were growing up, of course, it, it, it sorry, Glasgow, yeah. But in Glasgow and in the industrial west of Scotland, when they were growing up, it did matter, and uh, it's uh, worth uh, worth remembering that uh, uh, bearing that thing in mind that they were they were their own men. They did what they wanted to do, and they um, different, as I say, different personalities. But the methods, the similarity between their methods and I suppose above all in a Manchester United context their desire to send the crowd home happy to send the crowd home having been entertained peas in a pod the same the same management style the same management managerial philosophy um, and that's really the first I suppose the first 10 percent of the book uh, is just lists the connections between Sir Alex and Sir Matt. Both were footballers before yeah. they became very, yeah. very successful managers. Matt was, yeah. a, Matt was a great player, wasn't he? Well, I think he was. I think he was. I think he would have been. 
recognized as a top, you know, he, you certainly would never include him. In my opinion, you shouldn't include Sir Alex either in the list of managers who were never good players, because Sir, uh, Sir Alex had a very respectable career, uh, albeit entirely in Scotland, but when, it, when the standard of Scottish football was a lot higher than it is now. Uh, whereas um, Matt actually came to England and after a slow start at Manchester City established himself there as a classy midfield player, really classy midfield player, um, with no pace, very little pace. Um, it was like a well-behaved Paddy Crerand, if you, let, if, if, if you get my drift. Um, but <laughs> he, was, uh, he then went to Liverpool. It's strange that his career was spent with Manchester United's, what, the clubs that were destined to be Manchester United's two greatest rivals, Man City and Liverpool. But he went to Liverpool for a big fee, and there he became captain of Liverpool, and I think he would have been recognised um, as a really as a really good player, um, but for the war taking away his final phase of his career, he was he, he had to go to the war uh, in nineteen the Second World War in nineteen thirty nine. Where did he serve in the Second World War? Uh, he was lucky there. Ooh, he was lucky, very lucky, because he was picked by Sir Stanley Rouse, uh, who was the um, FA. Uh, G- chief exec I suppose you would call secretary they called him there but he was picked by Sir Stanley Rouse he'd been spotted by Sir Stanley Rouse and he was chosen nominated to be the player manager of a sort of all-star 11 and uh, and these players were all selected and basically they were given the rank of sergeant and they were made PIP physical training instructors but most of the time they spent just touring the battle zones, entertaining the troops. So Matt was the sort of Vera Lynn of football. And he was, it was extraordinary that he had no management experience, but he was, he was given a man called Arthur Rowe as his assistant. Arthur Rowe later became a very successful manager of Tottenham. And there were other people, Joe, Joe Mercer, who later became one of his great rivals as manager of Man City. Um, and great friend and another great friend Stan Cullis who was certainly his great rival at the time of Munich Wolves were, were the team that were pushing Man United for the top four United were going for a third successive title but Wolves were the favourites in 58 so you know these were people who, with whom he was to have a relationship they were wartime buddies but they were also became great friends and uh, so he, I wouldn't say he didn't see any action he'll have heard bullets and Cannons in the, the you know, uh, the heavy artillery and the. In fact, he saw a ship being sunk when he was on a flotilla going round South Africa. But um, he, yes, he would have seen things that you wouldn't want your children or yourself to see. My, my but uncle Charlie m- was also um, yes. recruited um, by by Sir Stanley Matthews. Yes, Charlie wanted to be a rear gunner. Oh yeah, until it was pointed out that statistically <laughs> it was one of the positions where you're most likely to lose your life. But yeah. he was uh, shipped or flown to the Azores, where a lot of the American bombers used to refuel, and that was a again. A, a relative um, safe haven. Yes, um, Charlie played with. I think he played on the other wing from Standard with Standard yeah, Matthews. Yeah, which and that's not a bad old pair of wingers, because you know Char- your uncle Charlie, Charlie Mitten, who although Matt Busby fell out with him, and you know nobody listening to this will need knowing that they they fell out, and Charlie's career never really 
peaked again after that, after he went to a rebel to a rebel, to played as a rebel in Colombia. But uh, what a lot of people don't know is that when Matt retired as a manager in 1969, in the afterglow of the great vindication and the, of the European Cup win at Wembley over Benfica, was that he was asked at a press conference, and, and I don't know because I wasn't at it, whether he off the cuff gave his all-time best 11 of this quarter century in charge of Manchester United. Um, but when he did, whether it was off the cuff or thought about it, the outside left was Charlie Mitten. Even though he'd fallen out with him, he was the best outside they left. They fell out, but when Charlie accepted the offer to go to Colombia, increasing yeah. his wages from £10 a week to £100 a week, yes. the first thing Matt said was, do they need a manager? <laughs> no, that's true. That is true. But... Uh, and Charlie was 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 quite. I think Charlie took that light-hearted response. Reflecting on it later, he probably didn't realise the menace, the iron fist that was in that velvet glove. Uh, because when he came back, I think he was treated. If people ask, as you know, yes, Matt has this cuddly image, but he was also ruthless, a bad enemy to make. And uh, he was totally ruthless with your uncle Charlie uh, Mitten, and uh, he wouldn't accept him back. He, no, he just said you're a great no, player. He, not even as a trainer. And um, he played in Salford Sunday Leagues for yep, three months. For and a then, pub team, wasn't it? Yeah, and then Fulham paid twenty thousand for him, which was a lot of money. He, he, well, a lot of money. But the previous rebel, Johnny Morris, yeah. the, a, a teammate uh, of Charlie's in the nineteen forty, great nineteen forty-eight side, played in one arguably the best cup final ever, certainly up to that point. Uh, Johnny Morris was sold for a British record now yeah. even Charlie's fee even though it was to a relegation bound Fulham yeah. was a huge fee but uh, Johnny Morris's was a British re- for a world record when he went to Derby I think was it And uh, so this shows Matt's absolute principle yeah he'll sell it he, he was willing to sell again you could, you could stretch a point to make a comparison with Yap Stam or David Beckham but the, Sir Alex Ferguson genuinely felt he'd seen the best of those um, and that he was selling for football reasons in both of those cases, even though they'd had fallouts over things, uh, particularly with Beckham. But with Morris and Mitten, he was genuinely cutting off his nose despite his face, but he's deliberately doing it and for a reason. Matt was Liverpool's captain yeah why did he not become Liverpool's manager well he could have done what happened there he could have done what happened was that the manager had taken him he Matt started at Liverpool he left uh, Man City because they'd signed basically uh, he wasn't happy at Man City by then but part of the reason for that they'd signed Peter the great Peter Doherty the great Northern Ireland uh, forward and later very successful manager um and so the, the, they had to sell. They sold Matt for eight eight thousand. He went to Liverpool, and there he joined at the same time as George Kay, a new manager, a manager who was influential, by the way, a great believer in youth. And I think he influenced Matt, and that's part of the reason that why Matt and Man United were such a good fit, because they both believed in youth development. But George Kay was very likable, Mancunian, in fact, had been with Southampton, done very well with youth there, and. Matt um, liked him a lot and it was mutual George Gay made Matt his captain and so when the war broke out it was in the Liverpool 
directors' minds that we've got our next manager in this captain of ours. And during the war, when he played, he guested for various clubs, including his own. Um, when he was in the northwest, he played for Liverpool. But um, the the Liverpool director said to him, "Look, we want you to after the war. You're going to be too old to be a top player. We want you to be assistant manager." And he said, "Well, I really, I really want to be a manager in my own right." And they said to him, "Well, you know, George is not going to get any younger, and he's." Gonna give up sooner or later. Would you like to? You know, it's obviously a job with prospects. You're the obvious man to take over. And Matt thought about this, but he didn't want to step on George Kay's toes, you know. And luckily for Manchester United, the most a lot of Man United fans listening to this will know this fella, Louis Rocca, who was the true. Uh, first youth development man at, at Man United even before Matt had come along and he was a great believer he was a friend of Matt's through the, the Manchester Catholic Sportsman's Club and all the Manchester charity, Catholic Charities uh, work and he wrote from his house in Prestwich, North Manchester wrote to, uh, wrote to Matt at his, through his unit in Aldershot because he didn't want to send it to Liverpool it was a very sensitive letter. Matt, I, your old friend, Louis, you know, uh, do you, the, there's a job for you at Manchester United. Now, even sending the thing to it, Matt, care of the army, he didn't want to put anything in that might get into the wrong hands, so he just said, a job. But Matt had a fair idea, I think, what job it was, so as soon as he could, he went to see James Gibson, the, the German, and uh, he was still in uniform when he was interviewed. On his way to, managed to sneak into Old Trafford on the way up to Scotland for a Scotland wartime international. And uh, there, it was a, just a total meeting of minds. Uh, Gibson offered him a three-year contract as manager, and uh, said, but. Uh, listen, we, we've already started a youth ball. We want to produce our own players. And that just totally chimed with Matt's own ideas. He wanted to create a family of kids who would all grow up together. And the, when the ones who were in their 20s became too old, the ones who were in their teens would be developing the same style of football. This was his... I mean, if it hadn't been for the Busby Babes, you would think that's a ridiculous... Um, ridiculously optimistic way of imagining that you can run a, a football club by breeding almost and yet the Busby Babes were, were proof that he'd not only said he would do it and done it sort of he'd done it totally um, but that was the vision that was laid out before him and he said I'll, I'll need five years not three how it was his first managerial job yeah how tactically astute very, very, very then. You see, lots of people have said, and even uh, you know, a man that we both know, Jonathan Wilson, who wrote the Inverting the Pyramid, a great, I mean, you'll, you'll have read it, and loads of people listening to this will have read it, a good book about a history of football tactics, which is terrific. There's hardly a mention of Matt in that whole book. And uh, although it's a terrific book, um, I think he should look at that again in the next edition of it, because 
To me, Matt, it depends what you think of as tactics. If you think, if you look, for example, at a Mourinho or a Guardiola team, you might not like the style of one, or you might think the other one's too purist, or but it's it's got the imprint of that manager in it. Some people hate the word philosophy being used in football. Some people say the only philosopher in football was Socrates. But the 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 truth is that enacting your philosophy is a is tactical awareness. And in the nineteen forty eight cup final that we spoke about before, Stanley Matthews said Matt Busby's tweaking of tactics at half time changed the game. Because United were two one down at half time, one four two. First team ever to come back from a adversity in a cup final. So I don't think he was tactically unaware and if you look but I think it was more in terms of instilling a philosophy you know two touch football uh, with I don't think he was a micromanager of, of tactics but I don't think anybody was at that time so I think it's a kind of a bit unfair to say that he wasn't tactical and he was he he, he got a bit hot, hot under the collar on, on this and in fact he, he he once said, he once said we're accused of being an off-the-cuff team. Well, frankly, accused is the wrong word because yeah, who, who minds off-the-cuff football? But he says we're accused of off-the-cuff football. But he got he got really annoyed that people didn't think that he and his teams, first team and reserves, spent ages and ages drilling on the on the practice pitch, and that's why. The second team played like the reserves in the in the you know the the team that died at Munich. One of the players that died, Jeff Bent. Every team in the country wanted him to play left back because he was the set. You know, a lot of people thought he was the second best left back in the country. But he couldn't get in the team because Roger Byrne was the captain, and he he was at United for several years, making about three three appearances a season, and he would. They had good players in every single position, and they all drilled, and they all got more or less the same wages. Jeff Bent would have been on two, three pounds less than Roger Byrne, who was a world-class player, really. Um, so, Busby did work very, very hard. Now, when I say Busby, I mean Busby and Jimmy Murphy, because you can't talk about, a little bit like Clough and Taylor, you can't talk about one without, without meaning the other. Or even Shankly and Bainsley, because you know, they work together. Um, and, and certainly Busby was only as good a manager as the presence of Jimmy Murphy allowed him to be. But the same was true of Shankly, and the same was true of Clough. So I think uh, there are very few managers who've been like Ferguson and have not had a great assistant, uh, the same great assistant all the time. But, uh, yeah, the, the, he worked very, very hard on pattern of play. And, and to me that's tactics we'll keep on the theme of uh, similarities between uh, Ferguson and Busby yeah. and they're the two greatest managers in, in the history of Manchester United and uh, two of the greatest managers in the history of British football yeah, yeah. was there a hangover post Busby like there is now is that a price to pay yeah when, is. when 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 
someone is such a dominant figure at the club yes. like Sir Alex Ferguson he didn't just pick the team yeah, yeah. he it, controlled everything but it's about more than it's about that. that is definitely true and, and you know you know all Arsenal fans are dread, yeah. even the ones that want Wenger out they're dreading having to cope with the post-Wenger era um, and, and it was absolutely true but even more so in the case of both Busby and Ferguson because of what I said earlier that they both insisted on style and substance together they wouldn't now you know whether that's true of the Mourinho area only time will tell he, he managed style and substance together at Real Madrid people I think are shooting off a little bit too early but I, I'm, I'm digressing here but it definitely in the cases of Ferguson and Busby they both wanted to entertain every week, home or away, they wanted to entertain. So that's what I think made replacing both of them inordinately difficult, even by big club standards. Because, you know, Manchester United couldn't, and I've got a theory about this, I think they could, would have gone for, if they hadn't cared about style, I think they'd have gone for Mourinho immediately before even David Moyes. But, they knew that it had to be done, the, the football had to have a bit of, for one of a better word, swagger, a bit of uh, exuberance to be acceptable to the Manchester United audience. And that's what makes it more difficult because, you know, a good coach can lick a team into shape. But lick a team into shape while scoring three goals, hello. Uh, but licking a team into shape while scoring three goals every game is more difficult. And uh, I think that's why, you know, it's, it, it, it proved so difficult. You, you would think, well, Louis van Gaal could do that, you know. But even Louis van Gaal, no mug, couldn't do it at Manchester United because the demands were so great. Van Gaal's told people that his system was not flawed. The problem was the, was the players. Now, yeah. he's probably bound to say that yes. because yes. he won't be judged as a successful Manchester United manager. Right. Um, I think he was right. I yeah, think. I think. I think, I think. I think. I think some of us overrated Sir Alex's bequest. I mean, I, fa- I, I, th- I th- or, or, or maybe we over- underrated Sir Alex's effect on, on, on anybody. You know, even, even good players rather than great ones. But I'll give you the perfect example. I can remember writing. At the time when Sir Alex handed over, what a wonderful bequest! For example, Adnan Yanazai, one of the brightest young players in Europe. So that's what I mean by overrating the bequest. Uh, you know, Adnan Yanazai. I'm sure Louis van Gaal would have loved to have ridden the player we thought he was going to be, but that that player wasn't there anymore. So, uh, and there are also things which are not the manager's fault. And, and I know this happened post Busby and yeah. as well, where you've got a whole club of people saying it's not like it was, mm. and that doesn't help the the, the person who comes yeah, next. That was different. The, the, there's a difference there, and I would say that Alex Ferguson uh, did the succession better, even though it was probably his the, his last title team was arguably one of his most more mundane. Uh, he certainly he still, tried to. He left a better uh, age structure. Uh, than Busby did. You see, the problem was that Matt 
when he handed over now in, people have criticised the handover to Wilf Wilf was too young and, and, and Matt overshadowed him and all that but that didn't happen in the Liverpool boot room Matt was Matt had invented the Liverpool boot room at the same time as Liverpool it just didn't work at United the way it worked at Liverpool it was a noble idea we appreciate the support of our sponsors which help keep this podcast free for you to enjoy uh, Harry's is a razor company. It's based in the United States. They've got over 3 million regular subscribers to their blades. And they're offering United We Stand listeners a trial set for only £2.95. It should be £11.50. If you go to harrys.com forward slash United, you can train, claim your trial set will be delivered to your door. Uh, I've, I've received one. I've used it. I liked it. It's a decent shave. The, you get shaving gel. It's all very nicely packaged. And you get razors with five blades at a very decent price, especially compared with other five-blade razors. And how they did that, Harry's bought a factory in Germany with over 100 years of blade-making experience. And they thought that by controlling the entire blade-making process and selling over the internet, they could keep the cost down, give you a high-quality shave at a better price. So if you go to harrys.com forward slash united, and then for £2.95, you'll get a weighted ergonomic razor handle. You get the, the blades, the shave gel, a travel blade cover as well. And you can subscribe. You can have them delivered to you as frequently or as infrequently as you like. Or you can just buy them outright if you want to do it. I suggest you just try it, see if you like it, and, and take it from there. It perhaps also owed something to Matt's aversion to moving out but on the other hand why not why not use him why not use he's he, he, it was just that they didn't think it through and 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 what i was told was that um uh, well we can go on to that later but the the point is that 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 matt was still at the club when his great when his european cup winning side Crer and sadler um, uh, charlton law best, uh, you know, all that, the, the names fall off the tongue. The, he undoubtedly, he had, was a softer man after the crash, less ruthless, and he could not bring himself to clear, to help clear those players out of the club. He couldn't bring himself to turn his back on them when they came to him during uh, Will's reign, during Franco Farrell. Franco Farrell was a good manager. He proved himself already. Uh, Wilf was a top coach. He, uh, in his mid-twenties, he was on Alf Ramsey's bench during the World Cup. I mean, Wilf was no mark. Uh, all the others who, who followed, they were undermined. And it wasn't until, by Matt, that the players, these great players, having Matt still to go to, and they still called him boss, of course. Um, as they, nothing wrong with that, because he'd, he'd been their boss. But it undermined those managers, and it was uh, to, uh, so f- that you can't really draw a direct comparison. Ferguson, at least, at least left a, a good age structure uh, to, to to work with, rather than basically. A bag of decay, which was, and, and and I speak as someone who loves and reveres Matt, 
but he left a bag of defestering decay. That bad? Yeah, it was. It was. Well, they, they it, went down because it, well, the the proof was in the pudding. Yeah, when they went down four and a half years, five years after his, his he he left, and 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 George Best had kept the whole thing up. But I I spoke to players. You know, at that time, Ian Ewer, for example. Yeah, no, Ian. Probably not a, a lovely guy. When did you speak to Ian? Uh, uh, a year, 18 months he ago. Was, he was, when I saw him last, it was a decade ago, yeah. I met him on Buchanan Street in Glasgow, and yeah. he was a governor at Barlini Jail. That's right, yeah. And we walked down Buchanan Street, and he's, a, he's an intelligent man, Ian. Very intelligent. And... Um, a couple of the big issue sellers and homeless people yeah. um, called him Mr. Yaw because yeah. they'd been inside. <laughs> I've never seen that before. I quite yeah. like that. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's a he's a marvelous guy and a bit of a hero to me because he was uh, he was in the Dundee. I'm in Dundee. That's supporter. right. Yeah, and he was in the team that uh, that played in the European won the, uh, the league for us. Uh, along with Alan Gilzean, another great player, um, in, in that Dundee team, and so I keep in touch with Ian. And no, I spoke to him during uh, the research for the book. He, he um, was not one of Matt's greatest fans, I have to say. And Is it inevitable? Because there are people who who adore him. If you speak to Paddy yeah. Crerand about some Paddy Matt, you would, cannot say a bad if word. If you said a bad word, yeah. you'd be taking your life yeah. in your hands. He'd want or, a, around, a fight. Yeah. Um, I spoke to Frank O'Farrell, another intelligent man, yes. about Samat, and he was very totally different. He was very measured what he said, but yes. he said there is no doubt whatsoever yeah. that he was interfering with my job, and it was done in a very subtle way. Yes. It was his wife saying, "You're an awkward bugger, you are," yes. and why don't you speak to the players? And yes. he just felt all the time that he was up against this wave yes. of pro Matt. And there's, I think you know, he wasn't alone in that. Uh, there are, you know, the. Um, there are people, uh, Ken Ramsden, a great, a great servant to the club, who felt that Frank got a raw deal. Yeah. Matt's, um, unfortunately, I wasn't able. Uh, uh, Matt's daughter, she, Sheena, yeah. uh, died unfortunately just as I was, um, so I wasn't able to speak to her. Who did you speak to then? Uh, well, in, in the family. But 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 sorry, I was just going to say, Sheena was a, a totally admired uh, Franco Farrell as a man, as a yeah. and as a football manager, and was and was sad, was genuinely saddened when the board, including Matt, uh, let him go. So uh, yeah, there was a lot of sympathy for Frank. But uh, I, who did I speak to in the family? Yeah. Well, this was or in the book, just because I see people yeah. putting books out there and they yeah. don't speak to anybody. And yeah. some people are good writers and yeah. they write books. And I think you've yeah. not spoken to you anybody. Can. You can. And I, I'm a journalist. You can do who, it. I'll put the hard miles in. Yeah. I'll go and see somebody yeah, face well, to you've face. Got a choice. Because you, what you get is usually so much better. Yes. And you, you can build a relationship, can, and they can keep getting him. Well, I read a book about about Shankly a few years ago, which the guy had obviously made up. But I mean, that was the biggest load of tripe I've ever read in my life. Uh, so, but that was perhaps an extreme one because it was so bad. But uh, you you've got that choice. You either make it up out of your head, uh, and you've got to be some you've got to be a pretty good writer to do that, or you do the hard miles. Now. You, you're a journalist. You know that really there's no substitute for that because when you actually talk to people, you're quite right. Their content 
it's from the heart, it's from experience, it's better than you could do. And I'll give you, an, I'll give you some examples, I could, I could go on all night, but I mean, today, uh, I'm, I'm actually on my way to Old Trafford tomorrow for a match, and I was talking to an old pal of mine, Jimmy Ryan, uh, didn't play all that many games for United before going to Luton, um, but Jimmy's a very eloquent man, and of course, was a fine coach, assistant to Alex Ferguson, when he on his return to Old Trafford. He only retired about two or three years ago, but um, I mean, Jim told me some stories about his playing days with George Best. You know, he, he piled up with George Best, and it, this is how long ago it was. That My mother he, used to say Jimmy was, yeah. was a handsome man. He was a handsome right. man. He's still not bad, especially when he's standing next to me. He looks great. But he... Uh, Jimmy was, yes, Jimmy was a nice looking man, very eloquent, a very, um, how can I put it, he was, he was uh, a deep man, a thinker, you know, a, a book reader, and, uh, a, and a great traveller, um, Jim, I've kept in touch with him, but Jim told me stories about when he was a, a, a youngster with George Best and how they palled around together, he says, we were natural mates, and I said, why, he said, because we were both shy, and we both didn't like alcohol. And uh, I, well, I think, they, well, it's true that the, the second problem was conquered in George's case, but I mean, it's it, it's quite poignant, you know, when you, you think of George, they used to go around, walk around a pitch and putt course because they, um, they could meet girls at the park uh, uh, the park benches next to the pitch and park course. How innocent. In Stretford. Uh, totally innocent and it's poignant. Longford Park. In uh, Longford Park, yeah. exactly. And, uh, um, uh, you know, Stret between Stretford and Cholton, yeah. come hardy. And, and, and why do you know Manchester so well? I lived in Manchester. Where did between, you live? I married a girl from Withenshaw. Did you? And I was born, I, I came to Manchester, I remember the first day in Manchester, I was applying for a job as a junior sub-editor on a newspaper called The Sun, uh, but not, not The Sun as you know it, um, in Oxford Road, Manchester, and the first on my first time I came to Manchester, I watched the World Cup final, 1966, through the window of our rumbelows. I didn't hear the commentary, so I never knew about uh, They Think It's All Over. I just was watching it, because uh, the shop was closed. It was wow. Saturday afternoon. And I watched it through the window uh, in black and white. And uh, so, and I lived in Manchester really from 66 to working for newspapers until about 1986. And uh, my 20 two, my, years of your life. Yeah, in my two kids are Mancunians, both born in Withington Hospital uh, off Princess Parkway. And uh, they're both Manx. And, uh, and, and my ex wife. Uh, we're not married though we keep in touch she's she's from Withenshaw though she lives uh, further south now so I mean and, and when I first went to Manchester I, I, I used to go to I was one of those in those days people would go to Old Trafford one week and Main Road the next there was not everybody most people were either United or City but there, there were a sizable number there, there of people there was a sizable minority yeah. and I was in them who would go to Main Road one week, and I used to stand on the kipax and then when I went to Man United, I stood at the scoreboard end, which was would now be called the. It's opposite the Stratford end anyway, 
and that was the east stand yeah east stand <laughs> and i would stand right at the front there in a standing section yeah. under a big scoreboard yeah and scoreboard also, and paddock yeah. yeah and i would see law you know the, the team would be law the law best and charlton would all be playing and so would paddy crerand and so it was great entertainment and uh uh and then i would leave about 10 minutes before the end get a bus into town and I would uh, do a Saturday shift on the Sunday People in, I uh, can't remember which part of Manchester it was in. Withy Grove? Withy Grove, yeah. that's right. And I would uh, sub-edit the, uh, you know, edit the reports that came in. And sometimes I'd be editing the report by Norman Wynn or Mike Langley of the of the match. I'd been watching the same afternoon. And it was a oh, great feeling. I mean, it was a great education as well, <coughs> sub-editing great match report match Mike Langley I, whenever I did a good intro all through my career I used to think oh that's, that's almost as good as one of Mike Langley's how intros. what would these good intros be like short tears you know uh, two or three um, I mean somebody once told me the greatest ever intro was on a on a, f a boxing match of uh, Joe Lewis just after the war maybe and the intro was uh, they say Joe Lewis slaps I hope he never slaps me. And that kind of, that was my style. Two short, sharp sentences that told you everything that happened. Manchester know. was a big newspaper city then, wasn't oh, it? Oh, it was, it, it mirrored uh, uh, Fleet Street. You know, I mean, the the Express building in Great Ancoat Street. Beautiful building. A beautiful black glass building with the ground floor showing the thundering presses, you know. You got a real feeling, you, you no doubt about what that business premise was selling you know and the newspapers would thunder and uh, Withy Grove as well was a, a great newspaper centre I started off at Oxford Road with a company called Autumns who produced this Sun but it was a it was a great newspaper city and of course I was taken back a little bit to that generation because it was post obviously post Munich uh, a few years post Munich when I first arrived in Manchester but it uh, going through the Munich section of the, which I hope we'll talk about. On yeah, the we're gonna we're gonna come stage. to that um, in in, uh, in, another in another podcast and talk more podcast. about Matt and talk about m more Munich. Yeah. But just tell us finally on the book. Tell us yeah. some of the people who you did speak to as right, part yeah, of this book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I could go on forever, but if you're talking about players, um, uh, Dennis Law uh, was 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 as usual great fun. Uh, and telling telling a few stories, uh, remembering the story when he and Matt, when when Matt put him on the transfer list, and and they they did a little deal where he got his money under the table, but he had to apologise in public and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Paddy Crerand, uh, who's been a uh, you know a close friend of a lot of journalists for a lot, as you will know, and a great old part of the old fa old Trafford furniture well. Uh, he was very generous with his time and I could speak to him forever he told me a, a few stories about, about Matt's canniness and all that and and but other but uh, David Sadler wonderful talker he told me about how now David Sadler probably one of the nicest footballers you would ever meet never had a bad word for anybody but he did have a little bad word for Matt he felt Matt let him down over a testimonial he felt that he'd had a promise a nod and a wink about that and that Matt didn't go to Tommy Doherty and say this boy's getting a testimonial and so 
this is why I say Matt had become a little bit softer after the crash. I think anyone would have been. And uh, particularly after uh, the, the vindication by the European Cup win. Uh, so David Sadler, wonderful story. With Jimmy Ryan I'm talking about. about Jimmy Ryan told me about a tour, a tour of America, which is a story that's hilarious. John Aston, the hero of Wembley, told me about growing up in the youth team and how they had to play how they would run along the railway track running behind Old Trafford and when a train came these great players John himself but David Sadler and the great George Best probably already priceless at 17 probably the on his way to becoming European footballer of the year George Best would flatten himself against the side of the railway track as the trains went by it's health and safety would have gone berserk but that was how Manchester United was in those days. It was unpretentious, and the lads grew up together, and they would really? sit in the bath singing Beatles songs. Thank you, Ryan told me all about that. Well, but I mean, all the players the and the great heroes yeah. of the club, the off-the-field heroes of the club, uh, the, the two Kens, Ken Merrick, Ken Ramsden, and Martin Edwards was, as usual, tremendously generous with his time um, and his memories. Some, yeah. some of them very painful. Uh, and so I, it was just a privilege to be able to speak to so many people. I've, I've probably missed out thousands, but I, uh, I just enjoyed every second of it. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Tell Pleasure. us, tell us who's published the book. Uh, it's published by Ebury, which is part of the uh, Random Penguin Random House Group, and uh, uh, I think they've done a beautiful job. The the cover has the elegance and the class of Sir Matt himself. Okay.